like them because they keep people from locking in. But one of the things that I wanted to make sure um, I did in this conversation is not interrupt you. Because <laughs> uh, it's, it's very frustrating for me when um, I'm, I'm hearing people talk in these what should be long-form conversations about very important and nuanced things. And, you know, I think one of the things that happens is people are very concerned with letting you say things that is going to get them in trouble or get their channel in trouble. Like there's a, there's people that are doing a lot of self-censoring. And I think they're doing that also when they're having these conversations with you because they want to establish right away that they have problems with you and they have problems with some of the positions that a lot of people have problems with. I was one of those people. So when I had heard of you in the past, before I had read your book and before I'd met you, I had no information on you. But there was this narrative, and this narrative was you were anti-vax, and you, were, you believed in pseudoscience, and you were kind of loony. I didn't look into it at all. I just took it at face value because that's what everybody had said. And in my mind, vaccines have been one of the most important medical advancements in human history, saved countless lives, protected children. And I, I thought very strongly that they were important. I didn't have any information on that either. This was also just a narrative that I've adopted from cursory reading of news articles and, you know, not really getting into the subject at all. Then the pandemic happens. And I had quite a few very reasonable liberal people, rational people, people that I, I trusted their mind, recommend The Real Anthony Fauci, your book. And I'm like, Robert Kennedy wrote a book about, the, about Anthony Fauci? Like, what is this going to be about? Like, this is my initial reaction. You've got this, what I perceive to be a kind of fringy thinking, you know, almost conspiracy theorist type person that's not based in fact what their argument was. And he had written a book on Anthony Fauci. And this was right around the time where I was, you know, I was very concerned with the way things were going, that people were just blindly trusting that there was only one way out of this. That was that was kind of bothering me, particularly when I had known that so many people had gotten the virus had been fine. So I'm like, well, what is what's the reality of this? So then I read the book. And I've talked about it multiple times on the podcast, but if what you were saying in that book was not true, I do not understand how you are not being sued. You, you, you would instantly, immediately be sued. The book was very successful. It sold a lot of copies, but it was mysteriously absent from certain, certain bestseller lists. People were not promoting that book at all, but through word of mouth and through the time that we live in, through this time where there was so much uncertainty and people were very confused and also suspicious. They were suspicious that they're being told a very a, a narrative and they were starting to remember that, hey, this has happened in the past. These kind of narratives about medications, these are, they have happened in the past. They just never happened where this is like the whole country is being convinced that this is the way to do it. So I read your book and by the end of the book, it was, so, it was so disturbing that sometimes I had to put it away and just read fiction for a few days. I was like, I don't want this in my head right now, you know, because I listen on audio, and a lot of times I'm listening in the sauna. So I'm listening while I'm already getting tortured. <laughs> so it's, it's 185 degrees, and I'm listening to this, this book that if it's telling the truth, just about the AIDS crisis. 
just about the AIDS crisis, just about the use of AZT, just about the, all of it, all of it. Um, so I, I had I, I'd seen numerous interviews with you and, you know, uh, you seemed very reasonable and very rational. And then I was like, is this possible that this is the guy that's telling the truth? Is this possible that everyone that I know that had these strong opinions of you, that most of them at least were like me? They had formed these opinions through this, uh, a glance at a headline, someone talking about you on a, on a, on a television show. And so uh, and then we run into each other in Aspen. <laughs> Just randomly. That was the weirdest moment because we were both staring at each other. Yeah. And then we almost did it like a full 360. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I noticed you walking. I'm like, I, that's, yeah, it is. So I said, hey, what's up? <laughs> so, um, so first of all, I wanted to ask you, if you could just please explain how you got into these controversial positions in the first place. Why, how did you adopt these, these opinions that people find so controversial? Because you started out as uh, an environmental guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, I, and I'll say one thing about that book is that it um, – it is depressing to read, and like my wife could not read it. She she was going to read it out of loyalty to me, and I just said you can't do that because it would have depressed her so much, you know. And I'm not, this is not a good advertisement for this book, but it's you know she there's so much about documentation of corruption and you know the sort of brutality towards children and. And I didn't want her reading that. Her life is about making people laugh, making people joyful, you know, which is which is its own contribution to kind of global health. You know, people who can make you laugh are doing you doing something for you that is going to probably extend your lifetime. You look at, you know, I look at Norman Lear, you know, who's like 96 years old or whatever, and he he's like look, look like 50. And Carl Reiner and all these people who you know laugh. There's something about laughter that makes you know that is good for you. And um, and so it you know I admire anybody who who took it on to read that whole book and and made it through. I uh, I was you know kind of one of the leading environmentalists in the country. I I founded I started. I went to work for commercial fishermen on the Hudson River in 1983 when I first got sober. And I, um, I wanted to do something with my life that I, you know, that I felt drawn to. And I'd always been an outdoors person. I'd always been a fisherman and outdoors, wildlife, kayaking and all that stuff. And I went to work for a commercial fisherman on the Hudson River. Uh, we began suing polluters. They purchased a patrol boat and began patrolling the river. And we sued. I, and while I was there, we sued over 500 polluters. We forced polluters to spend almost $5 billion on remediation of the Hudson. And today, you know, partially as a result of our work, the Hudson is now the richest waterway in the North Atlantic. It produces more biomass per gallon, more pounds of fish per acre than any other waterway in the Atlantic Ocean, north of the equator. The miraculous resurrection, and when I first started working on the Hudson, 
it caught fire. It was dead. It was dead water. Zero dissolved oxygen for 20 miles north of New York City, 20 miles south of Albany. No life in it. Wow. Um, it caught so fire. It was that polluted. It caught fire. It would turn colors every week, depending on what color they were painting the trucks at the GM plant in Terrytown. You know, it was really my father toured it and. 1967 and it was just it was regarded as a national joke well today it's an it's an international model for ecosystem protection and the miraculous resurrection it's the only waterway in the north atlantic that still has strong spawning stocks of all of its historical species of migratory fish of the anadromous fish like striped bass sturgeon herring alewives um blue crab etc um and the, uh, and the miraculous resurrection of Hudson inspired the creation of new river keepers. We copyrighted the name, and we started helping these other groups get started. And today is the biggest water protection group in the world. So we have 350 water keepers. Each one has a patrol boat. Each one patrols their local waterway, and they sue polluters. And we're in 46 countries. So in 2005... I was representing a bunch of uh, water keepers all over the United States and in the provinces of Canada, suing coal-burning power plants and cement kilns for discharging mercury. Two years before, 2003, the uh, National Academy of Sciences and the FDA had published a report, like a five-year study, that showed that every freshwater fish in America at dangerous levels of mercury in its flesh. The CDC simultaneously published a study that showed that one out of every six American women had levels high enough in her core blood in or that her child would have some kind of intellectual deficiency, like lost IQ, et cetera. And where's the mercury coming from? The mercury was largely coming from coal-burning power plants. It's in the geology and the coal, and it precipitates out, you know, when there's rain. If you, when you burn the coal, it's in the, you know, it's an element, so it doesn't degrade. And when the rain comes, it falls onto the landscapes, then it washes off the landscapes into the rivers. And the fish were all contaminated. We know that saltwater fish, like the big predatory species, have mercury, but the freshwater fish are just as bad. And it struck me then that we were living in a science fiction nightmare where my children and the children of every other American could now no longer engage in the seminal primal activity of American youth that I had grown up with, of your parents taking you to the local fishing hole and then coming home and safely eating the fish. You can't do that anymore in the United States of America or anywhere in North America. And so we started suing coal plants and cement kilns, which were the primary contributor of mercury, and there were a lot of people suing coal plants back then, but they were suing them for other reasons, for ozone and particulates, for acid rain, for uh, for carbon, et cetera. And we were focused, the water keepers were mainly focused on mercury. So I was also pushing legislation about mercury, lobbying uh, EPA to, to reduce it, and I was giving lectures all over the place. So these women start showing up at every lecture that I give, public lectures, and they would come and sit in the front seat, occupy the front, they'd come early, occupy the front row, and then afterwards they'd stay late, and they would ask to talk to me. And um, 
they would say to me in a, in a very respectful, and by the way, these women were all very, all looked kind of similar. They were very pulled together. They were, you know, they were women in childbearing years. As it turns out, they were all the mothers of intellectually disabled children, and they believed that their children had been injured by the vaccines, by mercury in the vaccines. So um, I, uh, so they would say to me in kind of a, a respectful but vaguely scolding way, if you're really interested in, uh, in mercury contamination to exposure to children, you need to look at the vaccines. Now, this is something I didn't want to do because I, you know, I, first of all, I'm not a public health person. I wanted to do environmental stuff. Second of all, I've been involved since I was a little kid in the whole area of intellectual disabilities. My family it was part of the DNA of my family. My aunt had been intellectually disabled. My aunt Rosemary, my aunt Eunice Schreiber, who was my godmother, founded Special Olympics in 1969. But she, she it was called before it was called Special Olympics. It was called Camp Shriver. She lived 10 minutes from my house, and I would go over there every weekend to be a hugger and a coach in Special Olympics. And then when I was in uh, when I was in high school, because this was so much part of my family DNA, I spent 200 hours in what say a home for the retarded, um, you know, working, doing service. Uh, so, but it wasn't something I wanted to do with my life. Other people in my family were devoting their lives to that. My cousin Anthony Shriver. Uh, started Best Buddies and, and many other people. My family had written a lot of the legislation that protected people and gave rights to people with intellectual disabilities. My father had kicked down the door and, um, you know, uh, of the of the big, of Willowbrook, which was the big hospital uh, in Staten Island. So my family was deeply involved, but it was not what I wanted to do with my life. But these women kept, it's, continually, I want to say harassing me, but they were following me. And it was different ones at every speech. And one of them, got, and I was like, I, you know, I was, I looked, did enough research to show that the public health authorities were saying that they, these women were crazy, but they didn't look crazy to me. And they were rational. They weren't excitable. And they had done their research. And I was like, I should be listening to these people, even if they're wrong. Somebody needs to listen to them. I mean, you know, and by the way, I had, you know, I'd worked on the Hudson River with the commercial fishermen. And I'd seen so many times when the scientists were wrong and the commercial fishermen were right about what was happening in the Hudson River. Um, I, one time, I'll just give you an example. The, uh, the commercial fishermen came to me and said, all the goldfish are dying um, up in the Wallkill Creek. And, and I went up. They said, will you help us get to it? Because there's a new sewer plant up there that's discharging chlorine. It's hard to kill goldfish. They're one of the most hardy species in the world. You can pour oil on a goldfish and it won't do anything. It won't hurt it. And um, I went up to, uh, to the Department of Environmental Conservation. They said there are no goldfish in the Hudson River. Well, these were people who I'd watched them catch goldfish in the Hudson. So anyway, that was just part, part of the background of my, you know, little bit of skepticism about government scientists, that they're not always right, that sometimes you have to listen to people and that human experience is valid. And that if a woman, tell, if a woman tells you something, 
about her child. You need, you should listen. And so uh, then one of these women came to my home and she found my home in Hyannisport at a little bungalow and her name was Sarah Bridges. She was a psychologist from Minnesota and she found my home. She came to it. She put, uh, she took out of the trunk of her car a pile of scientific studies that was 18 inches thick. She put it on my front porch, my stoop, and then she rang the bell and then she pointed to that pile and she said, I'm not leaving here till you read those. And her, as it turns out, her son, Porter Bridges, had been a perfectly healthy kid, got a battery of, of vaccines when he was two and lost the ability to speak. He lost the ability to, um, he lost his toilet training. Um, he began headbanging and engaging in other stereotypical behavior like uh, stimming, uh, hand flapping, toe walking, and got an autism diagnosis. And the vaccine court had awarded her $20 million for acknowledging that the child had gotten autism from the vaccines. And she didn't want it to happen to other kids. And so I started, I sat down with this pile of studies. And I'm used to reading science. I'm very comfortable reading it. I wanted to be a scientist when I was a little kid. And my life, my legal career has been about science. It's, you know, virtually all the the cases that I've been involved with, hundreds and hundreds of cases, almost all of them involve some scientific controversy. And so I'm comfortable with reading science and and I know how to read it critically. I know how to look for the flaws in it and, you know, how to weigh the, the, the uh, attribute weight to various studies, etc. And I sat down while she was there and I read through the abstracts of these studies one after the other. And uh, but before I was six inches down in that pile, I recognized that there was this huge delta between what the public health agencies were saying were telling us about vaccine safety and what the actual peer-reviewed published science was saying. Then I took the next step, which is I started calling people, high-level public officials, and I had access to everyone. I called Francis Collins. I called Marie McCormick, who ran the Institute of Medicine at the National Academy of Sciences. I called Kathleen Stratton at the National Academy of Sciences, who was the chief staffer, and I was asking her about these studies. And I realized during these conversations that none of these people had read any of the science. They were just repeating things that they had been told about the science. And then and they kept saying to me, well, I can't answer that detailed question. You need to talk to Paul Offit. Well, Paul Offit is a vaccine developer who made a $186 million deal with Merck on the rotavirus vaccine. And... It would be it was odd to me that government regulators were saying you should talk to somebody in the industry. It's like if I, you know, I used to talk to EPA people all the time asking them, what does, what does this provision mean in the permit? Why did you put it in there? And if they said to me, I don't know, why don't you go talk to the coal industry or is this lobbyist for the coal industry and he will tell you what we're doing? I would have been very, you know puzzled and indignant. Oh, it was weird to me that the, the top regulators in the country were telling me, go talk to somebody who's an industry insider, because we don't understand the science. And when I talked to him, I caught him in a lie. And both of us knew that he was lying, and that, and that both of us recognized that, that he was lying. 
And at that point, I was What like, was the lie? Well, I asked him this question. I said, why is it that CDC and, and every state um, regulator recommends that, um, that pregnant women do not eat tuna fish to avoid the mercury, but that CDC is recommending mercury-containing flu shots with huge bolus doses of mercury, I mean massive doses, to pregnant women in every trimester of pregnancy. And he said to me, he said, um, well, Bobby, in this kind of patronizing way, and by the way, when I talked to Paul Offit, he started the conversation, he was very enthusiastic, and he said, you know, my, your father was my hero. The reason I got into public service and public health was because I was inspired by your father. So that kind of, you know, I'm susceptible, like anybody else, to kind of that kind of flattery. So I was inclined to like the guy. But then he said this, I asked him about how can you be, you know, telling people not to eat, put women not to eat tuna fish, but giving them a flu shot that has, you know, these huge doses. And he said, well, Bobby, there are, there's two kinds of mercury. There's a good mercury and there's a bad mercury. And the minute he said, and I knew there's a different kind of mercury in the vaccines. It's ethylmercury in the vaccines and methylmercury in the fish. But I know a lot of, by then you can imagine, I know a lot about mercury. I've been suing people. When you sue somebody, on, you get a PhD in that. You know more than anybody in the world. You have to or you're not going to win your lawsuit. So I knew a lot about mercury and I knew that his argument was not with me, but it was with the periodic tables because there's no such thing as a good mercury. And I also knew the history of why he was saying that, because, you know, mercury was added to vaccines in a form called thimerosal in 1932. And Eli Lilly, which was a manufacturer, was because people knew then that mercury was horrendously neurotoxic. Mercury is a thousand times more neurotoxic than lead. You would never get, shoot lead into your baby. Why was thimerosal introduced into It vaccines? was allegedly introduced as a preservative, but it doesn't kill, uh, it doesn't kill uh, streptococcus or any of the other contaminants you would be worried about. In fact, it kills brain cells at one-thirtieth the dose that it takes to kill streptococcus or staphylococcus. staphylococcus. So... It wasn't a good preservative. Why, what NIH admitted to me in 2016, the real reason was there as an adjuvant. An adjuvant is a, a toxic material that they add to dead virus vaccines to amplify the, uh, the immune response. So your body, when, when the, I mean, this is kind of getting into the weeds, but a live virus vaccine, if they give it to you, it can spread the disease. It can mutate in you and spread the disease. That's why most of the polio today, 70% of the polio today is vaccine polio that came from the vaccines. Um, but so the regulators expressed a preference for dead virus vaccines. The dead virus vaccine, however, will not produce a durable or robust immune response enough to get a license. The way you get a license for a vaccine is showing that you get an antibody response for a certain amount of time and that it's a strong antibody response. But the dead virus vaccine won't produce that. But vaccinologists figured out that if you add something horrendously toxic to the vaccine, that your body confuses that toxic product. You add it with the dead antigen, which is the viral particle. 
the, your body confuses that toxin with the viral particle and gets frightened and mounts this huge, humongous immune response. The next time it sees that virus, the, the, the immune response is there. So they, at that point, vaccinologists went around searching around the world to find the most horrendously toxic materials to add to vaccines. And there's a mantra in vaccinology that the more toxic the, the adjuvant, the more robust the immune response. And so that's why toxicologists and vaccinologists don't get along with each other. Because the toxicologists would say to the vaccinologists, well, I understand it gave you your immune response, but then what is the fate of that in your body? Where is it going? Is it being excreted? Is it being lodged in the brain? Is it penetrating the blood-brain barrier? And the, the vaccinologists could not answer those questions and did not want to. So they basically moved the toxicologists out of these, you know, out of the vaccine, whole, the whole vaccine universe. Anyway, what? Um, so when it was added in 1932, the industry said, Eli Lilly said, um, well, the reason, because everybody was saying, well, how can you put mercury into a child? Who would do that? And they said, well, it's a different kind of mercury. It's ethylmercury, and the ethylmercury is excreted very quickly, so it won't stay in your body. They had no science to say that, but that's what they were saying for years. And then in 2003, a CDC scientist called Picciero did a study where he gave tuna sandwiches that were mercury, you know, contaminated to children. And they and then measured their blood and the mercury from the tuna sandwich was there half-life 64 days later. So it was still there 64 days. And he injected the children with mercury from a vaccine. And that mercury disappeared from their blood within a week. And this kind of confirmed what Eli Lilly had said in 1932. Oh, it disappears really quickly from the body. And that was published, I, I believe, in the Lancer Pediatrics. But immediately, the journal began getting letters from people, including this famous scientist called Dr. Boyd Haley, who is the head of, he's the chair of that chemistry department of the University of Kentucky. And he said, "What? But what happened to the mercury? Because Pichiero couldn't find it in the children's urine, or in their feces, or in their hair, or sweat, or nails. So where is it?" And then an NIH actually then commissioned a study and they because they at that point, they were really trying to figure out, you know, whether this was dangerous. And they commissioned a very famous scientist called Thomas Burbacker up at the University of Washington, Seattle, to do a study with monkeys, with macaques. And he did the same study Picciero did, but he did something you can't do with children, which he then killed the monkeys. And then he looked for the mercury, and what he found was the mercury, yes, it left their blood immediately. The ethylmercury from the vaccines was gone from their blood in a week. The methylmercury from the tuna fish was there two a month later, two months later. <clears throat> but when he sacrificed the monkeys and did postmortems, he found that the mercury had not left their body. Instead, the reason it was disappearing from their blood is because Ethylmercury crosses the blood-brain barrier much easier than methylmercury. The ethylmercury from the vaccines was going directly to the brains of these animals, and it was lodging there and causing severe inflammation. And, um, and you know, we now know it's there 20 years later. 
So, um, what you know, so the, so when Burba went off and when I'm on the phone with Offit and I said, he said the acid mercury is excreted quickly, and I said, how do you know that? And he said, because of the Pichiero study, uh, because the study by uh, by Pichiero found that it was excreted quick in a week. And I said, but you're familiar with the Burbacker study that showed and that it's gone to the brain. And there was dead silence on the phone. And then he said to me, he kind of hemmed and hawed and said, well, you're right. Uh, it's not that study. It's just a whole mosaic of studies. And I said, can you cite any for me? And he said, I'll send them to you. And he never did. That's the last I heard from him. So... At that point, I knew there was something wrong, and then somebody handed me a transcript of a secret meeting um, that took place in 1999. And in it was 1999; it might have been 2000, but it was called it's called the Simpsonwood meeting. And what happened is, in the midnight, you know, I mean, the, the history is that in 1986. Well, I'll go back a little further. In 1979 and 80, when I was a kid, I only had three vaccines. My kids got 72 vaccines. That's what you need now to get through school, 72 doses of 16 vaccines. So, and it started changing in the 80s and 90s, but in in like 1979, they uh, they brought on a, a vaccine called the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine. And that vaccine was very dangerous, and it was killing one out of killing or giving severe brain damage to one in three hundred kids. And it was pulled in the United States. It was pulled in Europe, and it, but Bill Gates still gives it to one hundred and sixty-one million African children every year. The same vaccine. The same vaccine, and to South Asian kids. And I'll tell you, you know, we now know what that does because the Danish government did a study uh, called Morganson in twenty seventeen that showed that. African kids, and that's that's uh, published in a journal called eBiopharma, and it, it was done by the leading deities of of, of African vaccinology, all of them pro-vaccine. People like Peter A.A.B., whose name is very famous, Sigrid Morgensen, and a bunch of others, and they went to Africa and looked at that. They had thirty years of data, and Gates had gone to the uh, Danish government and said. You know, give us money because we've saved millions of lives with this vaccine in Africa. And the Danish government said, can you show us the data? And he couldn't. So they went to Guinea-Bissau, which is a, a country in the west of Africa. And Guinea-Bissau, the Danes for 30 years had been paying for these these very advanced health clinics, local health clinics all over Guinea-Bissau. And... The, the clinics were were weighing every child at three months and every child and at six months. And in the in the 80s, they began or 90s, they began um, or the 80s, they began giving the DTP vaccine at the first visit, a three month visit. But if they didn't hit the child exactly, if they didn't have full 90 days, uh, you know, of age, if they were 89 days, they wouldn't give it to them the six month visit. As it turns out. They had 30 years of data where half the kids were vaccinated and half the kids were not between two months and five months of age. So it was a perfect natural experiment. And they went in there and they looked at it. They looked at 30 years of data and they found the girls who got that vaccine, the DTP vaccine, had um, 
had uh, ten times, were ten times more likely to die over the next three months than girls, than children who did not. And they, they weren't dying of diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. They were protected against those by the vaccine. They were dying of anemia and bilharzia and malaria and pulmonary disease, but mainly they were dying of pneumonia. And what the researchers said is that the vaccine is almost certainly killing more children than diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis prior to the vaccine because it was protecting them against the target illnesses, but it had ruined their immune systems. So they could not defend themselves against these other minor infections. And nobody noticed for 30 years that it was the vaccinated children who were disproportionately dying. And that's the problem with not doing, you know, real placebo-controlled trials. None of the vaccines are ever subjected to true placebo-controlled trials. It's the only medical product that is exempt from that prior to licensure. Anyway, what happened in the DDP vaccine, when it was pulled in this country, it was pulled because so many people were suing the drug companies. Wyeth, which is now Pfizer, was the primary manufacturer. They went to the Reagan administration in 1986, and they said, um, you need to give us full immunity from liability for all vaccines or we're going to get out of the business. And Reagan actually said to them, why, why don't, they said, we're losing $20 in downstream liability for every dollar we're making in profits. And Reagan said to them, well, why don't you make the vaccine safe? And they said, because vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. That's the phrase they use, and that phrase is in the statute. And it's also in the Brusewitz case, which is the Supreme Court decision upholding that statute. And so anybody who tells you vaccines are safe and effective, the industry itself got immunity from liability by convincing the president and Congress that vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. Now, the argument against that would obviously be they've prevented disease that would have killed untold numbers of children. Right. That would be the argument they would use against exactly. that. Exactly. And that and that vaccine injuries are very rare. That is the argument that is used against them. And both of those arguments in CDC's own studies have been severely challenged. So the CDC did a study in 2010 called Lazarus. And it was Harvard scientists um, who looked at one of the HMOs, the Harvard Pilgrim HMO, which is one of the top HMOs. Um, it's actually, I think, the ninth biggest HMO. But... And they were testing a machine counting system that could do a cluster analysis because right now the the only way the only vaccine injury surveillance system they have it doesn't work. It's one one fewer than one in a hundred vaccine injuries are ever reported because it's voluntary. And this is what you can you can find support for this in the Lazarus study. Lazarus actually looked and said. How many injuries are actually happening? How many are reported? And they said fewer than uh, fewer than one in a hundred are ever reported. And they developed a system of machine counting, so that it doesn't rely on voluntary reporting. What you do is you look at all the vaccine records for a population and all of the medical claims, the subsequent medical claims, and you do machine counting. You do a cluster analysis, and you it's very very accurate. And they found, CDC at that time was saying one out of a million people were being injured by the vaccine. They found one in 37. 
And so, and, and CDC had asked this team to design a machine counting system because their, their system was so heavily criticized by everybody. David Kessler, who was the Surgeon General, everybody was saying, it's terrible, it doesn't work. And Congress had told them you have to accurately count vaccine injuries, and they weren't doing it. So when they did it, when they actually looked, they found that it's not one in a million, it's one in 37 kids had, you know, had potential vaccine claims. Now, you can't tell whether any of those claims were actually from the vaccine because it's a machine counting, so it's statistical. But you can say that the number of injuries is much higher than anybody was admitting. Um, and then in uh, the year 2000, CDC did a study with Johns Hopkins called Geyer because there, there was this emerging claim that vaccines had saved tens of millions of lives around the world. And I'm not going to tell you that they don't because nobody should trust my word on this. You know, my, what I say is irrelevant. What, what is relevant is the science. And this is the, the principal effort by CDC to actually verify that claim. And what the Geyer study, and they looked at all the, um, you know, the history of each vaccine and health claims. And what they were trying to say is there, there was this huge decline in uh, infection, in uh, mortalities from infectious disease that took place in the 20th century. Uh, an 80% drop in deaths from infectious disease. And what caused that? Was it vaccines? And what they said is no. It, was, it had very little, almost nothing to do with vaccines. The real drop happened because of um, really engineering solutions. Um, uh, refrigerators, you could store food. Transportation systems that would get oranges up from Florida, et cetera. The roads, um, better housing, sanitation, the invention of chlorine, sewage treatment, but mainly nutrition. Nutrition is absolutely critical to building immune systems. And so um, what was really killing these children was malnutrition. And, you know, it was the infectious disease that was kind of knocking them off at the end. But the real cause of death was malnutrition and a collapsed immune system. And that is what the Geyer study says. Now, you, anybody who's listening to this, you know, you can go look at this study. So don't blame me and don't say, you know, Kennedy's in denial. This is the only time CDC ever looked at this. And it's called G-U-Y-E-R. It's published, as I recall, in Pediatrics. And it's, and it's uh, CDC and, NIA and um, uh, Johns Hopkins in the year 2000. And um, I believe the study is true and that it, it, and it's borne out by many, many others. There's another study from 1977 called uh, McGinley and McGinley. And it was, uh, uh, and that study also said that fewer than 1% of the decline in uh, infectious mortality deaths could be attributed to vaccines. So, and that that study was required reading in almost every medical school in this country until the mid 1980s. So, anyway, that, I'm just saying that that orthodoxy that you just described, um, it's it's not an orthodoxy that should be accepted on faith. People should actually look at it, and when they have, it has not borne up. I just finished this story, and I'll try to be brief. Um, in because why? Because Reagan. 
caved in, and it wasn't just Reagan, it was the Democrats. My uncle was the, chairing the health committee at that time, and the Democrats also went along. They passed the Vaccine Act in 1986, and the Vaccine Act gave immunity from liability to all vaccine companies if you, for any injury, for negligence. No matter how negligent you are, no matter how reckless your conduct, no matter how toxic the ingredient, how shoddily tested or manufactured the product, no matter how grievous your injury, you, your vaccine company, you cannot be sued. So this was a huge gift for this industry because the, the biggest cost for every medical product is downstream liabilities. And all of a sudden, those have disappeared. So you're not only t t taking away that cost, but you're also and incentivizing the production of many new vaccines. You're also disincentivizing. You're removing the incentive to, to make them safe because no matter how dangerous they are, they don't care because they, they can't be sued. And then, then, but you may say, well, if they're really dangerous, then uh, nobody's going to buy them. But the problem with that is nobody has a choice. Well, they not only got rid of the, the downstream liability, but they don't have any advertising or marketing costs because the federal government is ordering 76 million people, essentially ordering 76 million kids to take the product a year. If you can get that on the schedule, it's like printing a billion dollars for you. And so there was a gold rush. And then the other thing is they are exempt from pre-licensing safety testing. They don't have to be tested, and they're not. And I said this for many, many years. You know, I said not one of these 72 vaccines has ever been tested. Pre-licensing in a placebo-controlled trial where you're looking at vaccinated versus unvaccinated kids and looking for at health outcomes. Never been done. And um, Tony Fauci was saying he's lying. He's not telling the truth. This is vaccine misinformation. In 2016, Donald Trump asked me to serve on a vaccine safety commission, and I agreed to do it. And I and he then ordered Fauci and Collins to meet with me, and you know Peter Marks at FDA, and all the, so I had meetings with all these guys. And I actually went into that meeting with Fauci with uh, uh, with three people. One was Dell Bigtree, another one was Aaron Siri, the attorney, and. Another one was Lynn Redwood, who's a, you know, a very, very famous nurse practitioner, public health um, official in Georgia. And during that meeting, there was a referee there from the White House, from the West Wing. And I said to Fauci, I gave kind of a lecture showing what we knew. And I said to him in the middle of it, I had a PowerPoint. I said, Tony, you have said any, by the way, uh, you know, he's known my family forever, and, you know, my uncle was chair of the health committee, writing his salary every year, everything else like that. So, and, you know, and very cooperative relationship with him. The, the, the two of the senators that are NIH are named for members of my family, for Eunice Shriver and my aunt, my grandmother. So, you know, I said to him, Tony, you've said, been telling people I'm a liar. When I say no vaccine has ever been, none of the... Um, mandated vaccines, what they call recommended, they're actually mandated in many of the states. I said none of them have ever been tested against uh, in a placebo-controlled trial in a safety test prior to, to licensure. And I said, can you show me one vaccine that has been subject to a safety test? Show me one study that shows that. And he made it this show of looking through a red well 
they had brought in from NIH this big tray full of file folders. And he made a show of kind of looking through that at the time, but he couldn't find whatever he was looking for. So then he said, it's back at NIH in Bethesda, and I'll send it to you. Well, he never did. So Aaron and I sued him, sued HHS, and, and said, show us one study that's ever been done on you know, pre-licensing safety testing for vaccines. And after a year of stonewalling, they finally gave us a letter and said, we don't have any. So they, don't, they literally don't have any. So nobody knows what the risk profile for these products are. So they're telling people they, they, uh, they avert more harms than they sought and then they cause. But there's no science behind that statement. It's just a, you know, it's just a guesswork. But and it's an amazingly effective narrative. And that narrative, the way it's spread through this country... Like I said, yes. it has gotten me, and I think it gets a lot of people, and that people are terrified of being called an anti-vaxxer. It's a, it's a very dismissive pejorative. It's a very bad term. And if someone calls you, like, oh, he's one of those. Yeah. And it's, it's a kind of amazing what they've done, especially in a world where we're very aware of the, the side effects that were hidden from the public with other drugs, whether it's opiates or whether it's Vioxx or we're very aware that deception has taken place. But for this one, for whatever reason, that one, I, I think maybe it has to do with protecting children because good parents who don't, you know, they, they want to trust science and they want to think that medical science is the reason why people live so well today. And a lot of that's true. But they want to think that it's all connected and that they don't know what they're doing. So if they say you're supposed to get 72 shots, you should get 72 shots because they, they really know. Yeah. And, everybody and you think your doctor that. did the research, but he yeah. didn't. And you're absolutely right about the opioids. I mean, that, there's many, many other um, examples, but the opioids is a good one because if anybody goes and looks at that, that, uh, that Netflix documentary, Dope Sick, yeah. that documentary Hulu, is, right? What? Is that Hulu? Is it Hulu? Is that Hulu? So that Whatever documentary shows how this, you know, the, all of these subtle uh, forces that lead to agency capture and the, and the, um, and the, uh, this collusion, this corrupt collusion between the industry and the regulator, because it was the regulator who agreed to put on the label, it was FDA who agreed to put on the label, it's safe and effective and it's not addictive, you know, about oxycodone. Which is and, crazy. And right, and everybody knew it was addictive. You had the entire medical community who said, oh, we must have been wrong because FDA says it's safe and effective. Oh, you can imagine if they did that for vaccines and then you saw what they did in COVID, you know, and, and they had to continually change the goalposts. It prevents transmission. If you get it, uh, grandma won't get sick. And, you know, um, and each time it won't, you'll never get sick. You know, you only have to take one. It's, it's really effective. And then now it's two and that's it. And now it's three and now it's four. And, um, you know, and that, uh, and each time they had to move the goalposts and everybody just would go along with the next claim without ever saying, but wait a minute, you know, why should we trust you now? Because you were, uh, you know, you were saying was such, and by the way, the defense is, well, they were, <clears throat> we're in the middle of pandemic and they had to act quickly. 
But um, and you know they had to sort of do some guesswork. But they were saying it with such assurance, and they were punishing uh, doctors of conscience who began questioning them. They were ruining their careers. They were destroying their reputations. They were taking away their livelihoods of scientists and doctors. People who were getting injured, they were, um, you know, they were marginalizing, vilifying, gaslighting them and urging others to do the same. You know, getting on TV and saying, if you didn't do this, you're a bad person and you shouldn't be treated when you go to a hospital. You know, and all of these things, which is not, something was, you know, something was really wrong. But it's, it seems to be the same pattern over and over again. It's just bizarre that it takes so long to get the narrative out to people that when you get a corporation, any corporation, just any group of people that can make money unchecked, it seems to be a a normal human characteristic that they do that. When they're unregulated or unchecked or when someone's not watching them or when the people that are watching them are compromised. And then if you were literally funding media, so you're funding all these shows by and they have to essentially self-censor and you're seeing it. I'm sure you're aware of the YouTube videos of yourself that have been pulled now. You know, um, yeah, the I hot mean, boxing with Mike Tyson got pulled. Uh, Theo Vaughn's podcast Theo got, got pulled. Theo called me, you know, really worried and apologetic for saying, because I was going to go on his show again. And he said, I'm worried about having you on my show. And this is just two weeks ago. And what was, well, he's probably worried about getting another strike from YouTube. Yeah. So what was the subject that you guys discussed that was uh, such a problem? Uh, you know, I don't even know. He just, he, he said, and then... Somebody did an article on it, on what happened to him. Um, yeah, there was, there was, I think it's a place called Free Press. Had an article, but it was an old, you know, it was an old, it was weird because it was a, it was a uh, discussion. I've been on his show a bunch of times, but it was something that we did during the pandemic and they let it stand. Yeah. It was, then, uh, it was up for quite a while. It was up for a long time. And he, he called me like two or three weeks ago and he was like shaken. And because I, he, he had said to me, why don't you come on again? And, you know, I, I love him and I, his podcast is really fun and it's really close to my house. And I get a really good response from it. He is kind of a very interesting audience. I think he's got a big overlap with you, but, um, you know, he, it's it's really he's such a pleasant guy. And yeah, I love him to death. He's yeah. out here now. Yeah. So he uh, he uh, so I I was looking forward to going on his podcast, but he called me and was like, I don't think we can do it because I you know I'm worried about my livelihood. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, that's where the self-censoring kicks in. Yeah. And so did, did they give him any indication of what the subject was? <laughs> I don't know. He was trying to find out from them, and I don't think they were the, being that forthcoming. What did you guys discuss? Did you discuss COVID? We had a big, we had a long discussion. We did one that was almost entirely on falconry. One, uh, falconry? Yeah. <laughs> we did one. Well, you know, the one I went on Mike Tyson... I spent a lot of it talking about pigeons because I used to raise homing pigeons. When I, and that's really why I wanted to go on his show because I knew he was a pigeon fan, a pigeon guy. Wow. And, uh, and then uh, 
Yeah, and Theo started. Theo found out that I, you know, train hawks, and he um, he was interested in that. He's like a hunter, and you know, Tennessee, and uh, and so we ended up talking a lot about that. I don't remember if we talked about vaccines, but we must have at some point. Yeah. We must have. But that uh, that kind of self censoring is uh, it seems to have <laughs> ramped up, and they, they when I, like I said, they deleted the Mike Tyson episode, they deleted the the Theo Vaughn episode. I'm not aware of any other ones. Are you aware of any other ones that got taken down as well? Well, I mean, anything I put up goes comes down, but yeah, yeah. I mean, we're you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm heavily censored. Let, let me. Can I just finish the yeah. kind of the vaccine saga? And because you let me talk so long already, and I, don't, I really don't want to talk about this stuff, talk about other stuff. But, it, but okay. I'll just finish this. What happened in the in around 1999? The, the, the vaccine schedule immediately after they passed the Vaccine Act exploded because all these companies were rushing to get new vaccines onto the schedule many of them for diseases that weren't even casually contagious, like ridiculous diseases that are on that, like hepatitis B. Why would you give, you get hepatitis B from, you know, from sharing needles or from like going to a really seasoned prostitute or from, uh, from, um, you know, sort of compulsive uh, uh, homosexual behavior. Oh, you, but a baby, a baby can get it if they get it from their mom. But every mom is tested. So, you know, at the hospital, every mom, every pregnant woman is tested for it. So the baby doesn't need this. Is there a treatment for it when they do get it? Yeah. But but the thing is, why would you give it to a one-day-old baby, you know, or a three-hour-old baby, and then four more times when that baby's not going to be even subject to it for 16 years? And it, it may not even – I mean, originally what happened is Merck – and CDC designed this for pro- prostitutes and for male homosexuals, promiscuous male homosexuals, and they couldn't sell any because those cohorts had other better things to do with their money, and they didn't, you know, they weren't going to buy the vaccine. So CDC went, or Merck went back to CDC and said, "We built all these plants and we got the thing and got it approved, and we were, you know, a billion dollars in. What are you going to do?" And CDC said, "We'll just recommend it for children." And that way they keep the what they call the warm production uh, lines. You know, they keep they keep the vaccine. Uh, they they like to have a lot of vaccines in case there's emergency. They have a lot of lines out there that they can you know manufacture a pandemic response on. This is what they say. So anyway, all of these new crazy diseases, rotavirus, and you know we're all put on the schedule, and um. And they, uh, and then they started seeing all of this explosion in chronic disease, and particularly autism. So around 1995, CDC, uh, Congress said to EPA, "What year did the autism epidemic begin?" And EPA is a captured agency, but it's captured by the coal industry and the oil and the pesticide industry, but not by the pharma because it doesn't regulate pharma. So it actually did a real science, and it said. 1989 is the year the epidemic began. It's a red line. And 1989 was the year the vaccine schedule exploded. That doesn't mean that's a correlation. It does not mean causation. But it is something that should be looked at. So, and NIH decided to look at it because women were saying it was the vaccine. 
again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Women were coming with the same story. I, I had a perfectly healthy two-year-old, exceeded all my his milestones. I gave them on their second birthday or 18th month wellness visit a full battery of six or eight vaccines and the and that child spikes a fever that night uh, has a seizure and over the next three months loses their language loses their capacity to make eye contact to finger point uh, social interactions and languages disappear and it happened so many times that nih was saying we got to look to see if it's the vaccine and cdc was so cdc hired a um uh uh Belgian epidemiologist named Thomas Verstraten. And they opened up the vaccine safety data link, which is the biggest database for vaccines for HMOs. All the the top 10 HMOs have all their records in there. So they have all your vaccination records and all your health claims. So you can do these kind of cluster analyses. And Verstraten went in there and he looked at one thing. He looked at children who got the hepatitis B vaccine within their first month of life and and compared those health outcomes in children who did not. In other words, children who got it after 30 days or didn't get it at all. That was the second cohort. And what he found in his first run through the data is there was an 1135% greater or elevated risk for an autism diagnosis among the kids who'd gotten it in their first 30 days. At that point, they knew what caused the autism epidemic because a relative risk, they, it, it's, a, it's called a relative risk of 11.35. A relative risk of two is considered proof of causation as long as there's biological plausibility. A relative, um, the, the relative risk of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for 20 years and getting lung cancer is 10. This was 11.35. So there was a panic Throughout the industry, this you know, as people heard about this study, the CDC uh, wanted to do a meeting with all of the big pangerums of the industry. But they didn't want to do it on CDC campus because then they thought it would be subject to a freedom of information law request. They wanted to do it to keep it secret. So they they found this retreat center, a Methodist retreat center in Norcross, Georgia, called Simpsonwood, and they assembled, I think there was 72 people there, and they were from the WHO, CDC, NIH, FDA, um, and all the vaccine companies, and all the big academics, the people who basically develop vaccines in the academic institutions, and they were all there. And they spend the first day, they, they give them all a copy of the first round study, but they have to give it all back because they don't want it out there. And then they have a day of talking about it where they're all saying, holy cow, this is real. And, you know, the, the lawyers are going to come after us. This, we're all in trouble. And then they spend the second day talking about how to hide it. And um, how do you know this? Because somebody made a recording of it. And I got a hold of the transcripts and I published excerpts from those transcripts in Rolling Stone and anybody can go and read these now on our website. It's called Simpsonwood and you can read through the whole thing or you can read my Rolling Stone article, uh, which is also on the website, which summarizes it. And uh, uh, but anyway, and check, you know, if that if that if you think it's true or not. Uh, but they so then I when I read that. When I read that, then I was like, okay, I, I got to like drop everything and do something about this. And I published this article 
in Rolling Stone, and I, you know, and I was kind of shocked by the just the power of the reaction against it of people, you know, coming after Rolling Stone and Salon, which also published it, uh, were just bulldozed with, you know, these hate reactions, and then and Salon six years later, six years they by, by the way. Um, there were four corrections, I think four or five corrections in the article in the next week, right? All of those corrections were made by the, the editors of Salon and Rolling Stone. And I, they've sent me letters, which are also on our website, saying this. None by me. Um, but from then on, they said, oh, Kennedy, it was loaded with mistakes. And six years later, Salon, under pressure from the pharmaceutical industry, takes it down. And says we found mistakes in it, but they never showed any mistakes. They wouldn't have never. I've said repeatedly to them, show me one mistake in that published piece. Show me one. And they have not been able to do it. And then they also forget that the four mistakes that they, that, you know, were found that, you know, that, uh, that we printed a rata for, that Rolling Stone printed a rata for, um, were all made by them. And that because they edited my 16,000 word piece down to a 3,000 word piece. And when they were doing that, they made some errors. Um, so then, uh, so then um, you, but what, what, what happened after that is you had this explosion in chronic disease. So that, so, and this is something everybody, this is the, this is the punchline. And this is what everybody needs to focus on. In 1960s, when I was a kid, 6% of Americans had chronic disease. What do I mean by chronic disease? Basically three categories plus obesity. One, neurological disorders, ADD, ADHD, speech delay, language delay, tics, Tourette's syndrome, narcolepsy, ASD, autism. Autism went from one in 10,000 in my generation, it's still one in 10,000 in my generation. I, how old are you? 55. 50, I bet that you've never met anybody with full-blown autism your age. You know, head-banging, football or helmet on, non-toilet train, non-verbal. I mean, my, I've never met anybody like that my age. But in my kid's age, now one in every 34 kids has, has autism, and half of those are full-blown, meaning that description. Now, what's the conventional explanation for that? Well, I mean, there, there's no real explanation. You know, well, how they, do they try to they, explain? They try to say, well, we're just noticing it more, which is ridiculous because, first of all, there's all kinds of studies that say that the, you know, really good studies like uh, Irva Hertz-Pachado is a very famous scientist, epidemiologist, biostatistician who was commissioned by the California state legislature to answer that question. She's at the UC, uh, at, at the Mind Institute at UC Davis. And she came back and said, no, the, the epidemic is real. It's not, you know, better diagnostic or changing diagnostic criteria. And so, and that, you know, any real scientist now, even the big backers like Paul Off, it won't, I don't think even he will say that. But nobody from CDC is actually going to stand up and say that. They certainly won't debate the point. But even more so, if if it's one, if if it's not an epidemic, then where are all? Where are the one in thirty-four, sixty-nine-year-old men who are wearing helmets and non-toilet trained? You know, if you got autism, you live for, forever. It doesn't affect lifespan. 
you're gonna these kids are gonna be around forever and they and but there's nobody my age who looks like that so if it was if it was really better recognition you'd see it in every age group not just in children not only that but it changes every year it gets worse and worse every year so they can't keep saying oh we're just noticing it for the first time and also you know how does it get worse every year what? How does it get worse every year? Because, you know, the, the, the CDC releases new data. It's called the, I think it's ADM. It's a, it's a monitoring system. And there's been all kinds of scandals with that because the CDC tries to manipulate the data. And there's all kinds of whistleblowers from the different states who say that they're pressured to not report cases and that kind of thing. So... But the CDC releases new data every year, and every year it gets worse. It's, it goes from, you know, it's now, I think, one in 22 boys. Has the rate of and by, vaccinations changed? Has, has the schedule yeah, the, changed? the rates of vaccinations have gone up. And, you know, the, the mercury has been removed from a lot of the vaccines. But it, there's aluminum in those vaccines, which, you know, operates along the same uh, biological pathways and does the same kind of damage. It's extremely neurotoxic. And then there's other things, lots of other toxics in the vaccines that, you know, could be responsible. To, I mean, there's lots, there's hundreds and hundreds of scientific studies that looks at it, but nobody ever reports them. Well, I did a book in which I, I, I have uh, 450 studies that are digested in that book you know, that I summarize and cite and 1,400 references. And everybody will say, oh, there's no study that shows autism and, and vaccines are connected. That's just crazy. You know, it's, that's people who are not looking at science. So anyway, well, but they want to say that they want to say that it's well, like it, it, it's, it's just it's, part of the religion. Yes, right. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, it really does seem like a, like and, a religion. And the heretics have to be burned at the stake. Yes. They have to be humiliated, yes. silenced, destroyed. Oh, it, it is. It you know, trust in the trust the experts is not a function of science. That's yeah. the opposite of science. Tr tr trusting the experts is a function of religion it's not an and totalitarianism well, especially it's not a function of science or democracy you know in democracies you question people in authority and 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 maintain a posture of skepticism toward them the same is true in science you don't trust the experts right but but it wasn't all the experts either that was part of the problem the oh, experts no, that did including that, robert malone these guys what, are maligned in uh, such an obvious and slandered in such a uh, like a blatant way yeah well you know when i um when i when they first started saying trust the experts i was saying where do they get that from i've been litigating for 40 years every case i have there's experts on both sides so when we right. when we brought the Monsanto case, they had experts from Yale, Stanford, and Harvard, and we had experts from Yale on our side, Stanford and Harvard, and they both said completely different things from each other, and they were totally credible. So that's why you know, and the jury decided that our experts were right and their experts were wrong. Uh, the idea you can trust the experts, experts get biased too. You know, you pay expert enough money and a lot of them will say whatever you want them to say. And I, and the people who were saying this at the top had a lot of, of money and power at stake. So anyway, so I'm almost finished. The autoimmune disease, the second category is autoimmune diseases. 
and all those neurological diseases explode in 1989, as I say. Autism just exponentially explodes. Um, and if you're my age and you're listening to this, you know, and I know you got a younger demographic, but you will remember that you didn't know anybody who looked like this when you were, you know, in school. We didn't know kids who had diabetes. We didn't know kids who had, or had EpiPens. The autoimmune diseases like diabetes, juvenile diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Crohn's disease, all of this stuff suddenly appeared. I didn't know any of these diseases when I was a kid. But they existed when you were a kid. Well, some of them did. Some, but you know, they were so rare. I mean, even like the allergic disease. I didn't know anybody who had a peanut allergy. I had eleven siblings, like seventy-first cousins, and you know, I never. I, and a lot, a lot of friends. I never knew anybody with a peanut allergy. Why do five of my seven kids have allergies? You know, it's it. And of course, we know why. Because aluminum. Uh, adjuvants give you allergies. They're designed to make you, you know, to, to create a hyperimmune response to, to, you know, to foreign particles. And the last category is, yeah, the allergic diseases, uh, peanut allergies, food allergies, um, eczema, which I never knew anybody with eczema when I was a kid. I never, uh, asthma, I knew people with asthma, but it wasn't one in every four black kids like it is today. So, you know, all of those things. Now, we went from uh, 6% of American having chronic disease. By 1986, we're starting to add the vaccines, and we got um, and 11.8% of kids now. So it's doubled. By 2006, 54%. These are kids who are permanently disabled, and they're, uh, they have to be on medication their whole lives. So we are the sickest generation in history. There's no other country in the world that has this kind of chronic disease epidemic. We have the biggest chronic disease. And, of course, this is one of the reasons we have the highest death rate during COVID, because we have the highest chronic disease burden in the world. And, you know, listen, it's not just the vaccines. And I never have said that. It, it, there, our children are swimming around in a toxic soup. What we can say is most of it started in 1989, and there are only a certain, there's a finite number of culprits that you can point to and say, this talk, it has to come from a toxic exposure because genes don't cause epidemics. You, they can provide a vulnerability, but you need a toxic exposure. What is it? Is it, you know, it could be glyphosate. It could be neonicotinoid pesticides. It could be PFOAs, which are the flame retardants that became ubiquitous, you know, around that same timeline. It could be cell phones. You know, it could be uh, you know, Wi-Fi uh, um, uh, radiation. So there's a That's certain, unlikely. What? Isn't that very unlikely, It though? could be ultrasound. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, I, you know, I think the, the Wi-Fi radi- uh, radiation is a lot worse than people think it is. But, you know, I don't think. How so? Well, Wi-Fi radiation is uh, does all kinds of bad things, including causing cancer. Wi-Fi radiation causes yeah, cancer? Yeah, from your cell phone. I mean, there's cell phone tuner, tumors. You know, that I mean, I'm representing hundreds of people who have cell phone tumors behind the ear. It's always on the ear that you favor with your cell phone. Oh, um, and, you know, we have the science. So if anybody lets us in front of a jury, they, it will be over. You know, we, so what is, the, what is the number? Because a lot of people use There's a phones. lot of people with it. They're glioblastomas. That's the kind of cancers that they get. 
But cancer's not the worst thing. They also, you know, it opens up, Wi-Fi radiation opens up your blood-brain barrier. And so all these toxins that are in your body can now go into your brain. How does Wi-Fi radiation open up your blood-brain barrier? Yeah, now you're going beyond my uh, my okay. expertise. I, I, but what there are there are I'm going to use a number here, and you're going to think it's hyperbole, but but it's not. There are tens of thousands of studies that show the horrendous danger of Wi-Fi radiation, and. So and this is Wi-Fi like that's in this room. Yeah, it's, we have it's, Wi-Fi. You, it's Wi-Fi like, routers. You should not be asleep, and you should not let your kids carry their cell phones on their breasts, particularly a woman, because they're associated with breast. You know, they shouldn't be holding them in the breast pocket. If you have to, all put them in your you know butt pocket. You should not be uh, having them near near your head when you're sleeping. You know, you need to get away, and you should never put one next to your head. You should always, I, like, I will never put this next to my head. I put it on a, I, you know, I put it on a speakerphone or use earphones. Uh, but, you know, I won the case in front of, on this issue of uh, suing FCC and FDA about it. And, um, and, you know, and the court sided with me. So now they're going to have to go back to the drawing board and do it. But the Russians, you got Russians know more about Wi-Fi radiation than anybody. They, they developed it as a weapon, and a lot of the really good science came out of Russia. And, uh, you know, the Russians won't let kids use cell phones in kindergarten or, you know, in, in grade school. A lot of the schools in Russia don't let cell phones in there because of the danger. And the levels of radiation that they allow from cell phones is like one one-hundredth of what and I don't know exactly what it is, you know, so that's a number people shouldn't hold me to, but it's, it's, it, it is a tiny fraction of what we allow in this country. So the, the Wi-Fi radiation is obviously different than cell phone radiation. So you're talking about people that are just in a room with Wi-Fi are being exposed to something? Yes, yeah, people, and, you know, people have different sensitivities to it. Some people are extremely sensitive. They become completely debilitated from it. And um, really, oh yeah, we have a Wi-Fi. Yeah, we have a woman who uh, who was um, who developed an an allergy to Wi-Fi. She was in the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, and she was in their cyber warfare unit. So she was in a room with it all the time, and suddenly she developed. And she's a brilliant lawyer. Um, and she's one of the leaders of, you know, uh, in this movement to get to make sure that they don't put Wi-Fi antennas on elementary schools, which they're doing now. There's no control over where p- people put these antennas. And um, and uh, so what do you think Wi-Fi is doing to us since it's everywhere and since everyone's experiencing, including you? What do you think it's doing? It, to us? I think it degrades your mitochondria. It uh, and it you know opens your blood brain barrier. Do you do you see anything online of how it could open up your blood brain barrier? I don't know about how, but I that it does. Found, I mean, I don't. I found an article. I was trying to find the validity of it, but it has a statement on here. Damage the blood-brain barrier. Radiofrequency radiation exposure has been shown to affect the permeability of the blood-brain barrier as well as altering the expression of microRNA within the brain, which researchers state could lead to adverse effects such as neurodegenerative disease. Whoa. How come we don't know that? There's a doctor that did a study 
and said that it's been expanded on researchers in China, and there's a published article here, but I was looking around at the page. and They, they call it leaky brain. The findings were followed by suppression, misinformation, and a shutdown of government-funded yeah. research in the United yeah. States. It's the same. It's the same play. Oh, we got to get rid of Wi-Fi. Mm. <laughs> what the fuck, Jamie? I <laughs> hard time this place. Yeah. Oh my God. That's anyway. So, but I'm not. I don't know. You know, I can't tell you where the chronic disease epidemic. I think it's probably cumulative. You There's know. a lot going on. There's so a it's lot not just our, our kids are swimming around in a toxic soup. But you know, we're now up to more than 54 percent of kids now have chronic disease, and and you know, you know, I mean, one of the things reasons I want to be president is to end that of NIH actually doing studies like this rather than suppressing them. And let's figure out what it is, why kids have chronic disease and end it. It's costing us. I mean, we had, during COVID, we had, we have 4.2% of the global population. We had 16% of the COVID deaths. And that's probably a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons has got to be the, the burden that we have of chronic disease in our country. And we spend $4.3 trillion on health care every year in this country. 80% of that goes to chronic disease. Oh, it's, you know, it's bankrupting us. I wanted to talk to you about glyphosate because you brought it up. And um, one of the things I noticed when there, there was a test that came out or a study that came out recently that showed that an enormous percentage of Americans, it was somewhere in the 90% range, uh, when they were tested, had glyphosate in their blood. And then I saw a bunch of apologists online that were saying that these numbers that they're used to detect are so minuscule. And then someone I talked to said, yes, but that is the average. So you're going to get some people that are exposed to tremendous amounts and that, that it could be toxic levels. Then some people who are exposed to very, very little. This is the average. But there's no data on – is there data on long-term, even low-dose glyphosate in your system because there, there's glyphosate know, we should we should just tell people is yeah glyphosate is the is the active ingredient of roundup and roundup um was used i mean when we sued monsanto there's a it, there's a, uh, there's many many diseases that are linked to glyphosate exposure uh including um uh Non-alcoholic fatty liver cancers are very, very closely linked. Um, a lot of kidney diseases and then severe damage to the microbiome um, because it's designed to kill plants. Um, uh, and it and, and there are there are structures in your um in your gut biome that are critical structures in your gut biome which have plant-like metabolisms which are destroyed by glyphosate and so you know what what happened is um glyphosate and glyphosate was a it was originally developed as a as a, a tank scalant so to to scale the calcium and other deposits, metal deposits, rust deposits from the inside of, you know, underground tanks. And in 1973, uh, Monsanto had to stop producing DDT because, you know, we passed the laws at that time. And it, that was its flagship product and it needed another product. And it figured out that 
um, glyphosate. Somebody at some point apparently threw some glyphosate on the, you know, out in the back in the yard, and everything like green died where they touched it, where it touched glyphosate. And so somebody said, "Oh, this will be a good herbicide because it kills all plants." So originally, Monsanto developed it as a as a uh, as a herbicide, but the way that it was applied initially from 1973 to 1993 was in backpack sprayers. So guys would walk down the corn field, corn rows early in the season when the corn was competing with nearby weeds for sunlight, and they would shoot the individual weeds. And then in '93, somebody figured out a way that that glyphosate. There were certain bacteria that glyphosate would not kill. And they said we could take a gene out of that bacteria and put it into a corn seed and develop a corn that cannot be killed by glyphosate. So they developed Roundup Ready corn. And that corn, you can pour glyphosate all over it and it will do nothing to it. So now you could fire all of those workers who are expensive and you hire one airplane and they fly over the fields. They saturate the entire landscape with glyphosate. Everything dies except the Roundup Ready corn. And within a couple of years, Roundup Ready corn was now on 90% of the corn, 95% of the corn in the United States is now Roundup Ready corn. And so, but it was still being, and then they developed it for soybean and for, um, and for uh, barley, for sorghum, for a lot of other plants. But it was still being applied early in the season. And then in 2000, around 2006, they discovered that if you sprayed it on wheat late in the season, it would desiccate the wheat. In other words, it would dry it out. And one of the big losses for farmers is wheat is if it rains during the harvest season, you can't harvest it because it gets moldy. And so if you can spray a desiccant on it and dries it out and kills it, you can harvest it right away and it won't get moldy. So all the wheat in our country started being sprayed that year in 2006 with glyphosate. And that's the year you saw this explosion of celiac diseases and, uh, you know, gluten allergies and all of this stuff that people, you know, that you may have noticed around then. But they also did. The first time they were, and excuse me, the first time they're, they're spraying it directly on food. Because it used to be they were spraying it early in the season, and it would, you know, it would wash off, and the and the corn would get higher than the, the weeds, and you wouldn't have to do it. But, it. but now they're spraying it directly on our food. Sorry, Joe. Go ahead. No, it's okay. Um, so, they when they when they started doing this, is there's a direct result like you can see the increase in celiac disease? You can see is this like documented? Well, no, th- these are. No, that's not documented. That's I mean, not documented. but the, these are there are there's a whole range of diseases that are now, you know, that people are are that science different levels of science have linked to glyphosate exposure. Here's the thing: in when you litigate, you when you when you're suing somebody for a chemical exposure, you have to go through a a, 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 a threshold called the Daubert hearing. And the Daubert hearing is a hearing that says, is there sufficient science that it's now considered kind of mainstream 
that um, we can show this to a jury. And the judge has to make that decision because the judge doesn't want people saying, you know, coming in and saying, uh, you know, uh, 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 a loud noise has made me crazy. Right. Right. You, there has to be before. And, and then a, a good attorney might be able to convince a, a jury that, yeah, this my client got crazy because he heard a loud noise. Um, so the judge needs to make a threshold decision about whether there's sufficient science to show a jury. And that is a very high threshold. So of all of the diseases that are probably caused, probably almost certainly caused by glyphosate, the only one to pass that threshold was the case that we bought for um, for Hodgkin, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So at, the, at that point, we had enough rat studies, enough human studies. We had about 10 of each. And we were able to go to the judge and say, "This we got enough science on this now to show that it's uh, that that non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is being caused by glyphosate." So that those were the only cases we brought. The other thing, but there are a lot of of you know really interesting studies that show links between injuries to children and the um, and the amount of glyphosate in a woman's urine and the mother's urine, you know, including a lot of. Uh, um, including um, sexual development. It's an endocrine disruptor. So, um, you know... Similar to phthalates? Like phthalates are an endocrine disruptor. Probably the most disturbing endocrine disruptor, and this is something we should all be looking at, is yeah. atrazine. Yeah. Because atrazine, which is now ubiquitous, it's everywhere. But you can take atrazine, and, there, you know, there's... You, you, what is his name? Jamie. Jamie. Young you, Jamie. You, you can look up. <laughs> you can look up this study. I think the guy, the scientist's name is Tyler, I think. And that might be his first or second name. But they took atrazine and they put it in a tank with 40 frogs for th yeah. uh, three years. They put it below the exposure levels that EPA considers acceptable to humans. And 30 of those frogs, they were all male frogs, and they were double Z, you know, male frogs, so they were super males. And 30 of those frogs were chemically castrated. Four of them turned into females and produced fertile eggs. So they took male frogs, gave them atrazine, 10% of them turned into female and produced fertile eggs. And we're subjecting our children to exposure to that every day. What is atrazine? It's in the water. It's a it's a pesticide. Here it is. Report toxic herbicide found in many Texans drinking water. That's it. That's from 2018, November 20th. Yeah, and what you know, what does this do to sexual development in children? Nobody knows because we we know what it does to frogs. Yeah, but um. You know, nobody knows what that does to, you know, what it's doing. Those kind of persistent exposures would do to our children. Yeah, it's terrifying. So atrazine, um, microplastics, all, all those things are having an effect, a similar effect on um, yeah. reproductive systems. Yes. Uh, yeah, we had uh, Dr. Shanna Swan who wrote that book, uh, Countdown, that's all about this, about the declining fertility rates, the uh, higher rates of miscarriage with women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what has this been like for you? Because up until those women came to, uh, to see you speak, your 
your life had been, I mean, obviously you went through a lot with your father being assassinated, with your uncle being assassinated, you, you being a part of this very public, both in service and in just being famous family. And then you take on this thing and even members of your own family sort of disavowed your opinions and uh, attacked you for it. And what I find remarkable, genuinely, is uh, the way you have been able to communicate with people who approach you with this uh, erroneous idea of what you stand for and that you can just rationally have a conversation with them and saying, if I'm wrong, I'd like you to tell me where I'm wrong. And those conversations are fascinating. It's because people will just want to shut you down. They just want to stop talking about it. Like they don't want to give you the time like, like you just had to, to lay all this out. It's a thing people don't want to believe. What is that like to be a person who carries around a thing that people don't want to believe? But that seems to be true. Um, <laughs> uh, first of all, I want to say this, that, that what you let me do just now, which probably lost a lot of your listeners because no, no, nobody wants to listen to. No, know, no, no. I do, I do not think that's true at all. But I, I'm so grateful to you because, uh, you know, for 18 years, nobody's let me do that. I mean, I actually, John Stewart let me do that in 2005 and, uh, you can go look at his, um, his uh, and and Scarborough, Joe Scarborough, on the, you know, in 2005 when my article came out, and that was it. And then they were, and they immediately, a week later, were disavowing me. Yeah. So, yeah. And you've been like a hero. I mean, you're an institution that's kind of a critical institution of this era uh, because um, you. You know, you've allowed, you've maintained this little island of free speech in a, you know, in a sort of a desert of suppression and, 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 and of critical thinking, which is, you know, you've been a champion of critical thinking. My uncle, when my, my aunt Jackie met my uncle, um, uh, Jack, John Kennedy, she, he was a senator and, and a confirmed bachelor and she was a, um, she was a reporter, a journalist, and she did this kind of man on the street interviews um, with people, these kind of quick kind of uh, uh, interview. And she asked him what his best quality was. And she expected him to say courage because he'd been a war hero and he had written a book and run a Pulitzer Prize for Profiles in Courage. Uh, but the answer that he, he gave her was curiosity. And I think that is the quality that made him a great president because he was able to put himself in other people's shoes. He had a level of empathy about other humans where he was always thinking about what it would be like. You know, why would people do things that um, and act in certain ways, including Khrushchev and Castro? And when he when he had conversations and exchanges with those people. Um, he was able to put himself in their shoes, and actually, his, his most important speech was the, uh, the speech he gave 60 years ago, three days ago. It was the 60th of June 10th of, um, of 1963, and it was the speech at American University about um, about uh, trying to persuade Americans to change their minds because they were universally against the nuclear 
atmospheric test ban treaty that he was trying to push. And that speech turned the country around. It was one of the most important, impactful speeches in history. And in that speech, he told Americans what it was like to be Russian. It was the strangest speech. And, you know, because I was raised, and most Americans of that era were raised thinking that we won World War II. And he said to them, you know, we believe this. I was watching combat, Vic Morrow, with combat, you know, every week with my brothers. It was all about how the Americans won. And he said, that's not what happened. The Russians won the war. And they paid uh, in a way that no nation should ever have to pay. One in every seven Russians died, you know, at Hitler's hands. And a third of the Russians, he said, imagine if America, every city and every building was leveled from the East Coast to Chicago. That's what happened to Russia. And he was telling Americans, you know, they're not evil. They're having a rational reaction. When they develop a nuclear bomb, they don't want to be invaded again. And we have to somehow make them feel safe. If we're going to have peace in this in this world, it was just a beautiful, beautiful speech, and um, it came, I think, because he had that gift of curiosity, and you know, you have that, and I think, um, and you have this love for critical thinking and this admiration. You have this parade of people on here, you know, like the Weinstein's and all these other people who are thinking out of the box and who are not. Um, subsumed in in orthodoxies but are able to break away from those orthodoxies and you know and and have come and and see the humanity and everybody and everything and it's beautiful so i think when the history of this time is written that you're you will have a, a um the role that you played in it you know and if we manage to get our way out of this kind of totalitarian trajectory i think a lot of that will be you know because of what you did i um in answer to your question, 